more live roving on Mars, this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome to the travel show that takes you to the final frontier. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society. More excerpts from our great conversation in front of a live audience, this time with Curiosity Project scientist John Grotzinger, JPL Mars engineering manager Rob Manning, and planetary scientist, Mars Exploration Rover, PanCam lead and author, Jim Bell. You'll hear Bill Nye, the science guy, too. Later, Bruce Betts and I will give away the cosmos, not the universe, the book. Emily Lakdawalla gets us underway with a report on the latest geological wonders imaged by Curiosity, the Mars Science Laboratory rover. But first, some interesting news from uh, orbit around the moon. That's right. This little lunar orbiter named Laddie is getting a one-month mission extension, which is good news. It may not sound like a whole lot, but uh, mission managers warned from the beginning that this little spacecraft wasn't going to be able to survive into an extended mission because it's orbiting so low at the moon and has so little fuel that it would just crash. So the fact that they get a month to operate a little bit longer there to go at an even lower orbit and scoop up some atmosphere and dust from closer to the lunar surface is really fantastic news. So uh, the mission should now end and on or around April 21, 2014. Just how low of an orbit are we talking about? Well, project scientist uh, Richard Ulfick talked about it being just above the treetops. And of course, there are no treetops on the moon. But he did mention a figure of five kilometers, 5,000 meters, which is very low, even lower than commercial jets fly when they're going coast to coast. So it's going to be flying extremely low. We'll see some really cool new dust species and some more of the atmosphere. And, and I wish them luck. Let's head out farther to Curiosity on Mars, which is uh, getting some wonderful images from a spot that sounds like it ought to be in the Australian outback. Yes, they've named the spot Dingo Gap. They're calling all of the places in this particular region of the landing site after sites in Australia. And it's really a wonderful geology field site. You can look out and see these layered rocks exposed in the walls of this canyon. It's exactly the kind of site that a geologist wants to investigate to see layer upon layer and read the geologic history from the different kinds of rocks that we see here. There's very flat, finely laminated rocks. There's rocks with little rounded pebbles in them. And then you step back and you look out across the landscape. And it's just gorgeous with these flat-topped mesas and eroded canyons. So the sites are really getting quite beautiful on the Curiosity mission. Why were you excited about those rounded pebbles, among other things? Well, a rounded pebble is just a telltale sign for a geologist that you had uh, rocks that were being tumbled in liquid water. You know that there was copious liquid water affecting the sediments that became rocks at this site. Now, that's not the best kind of environment for the ultimate science that Curiosity is looking for. Curiosity is looking for organic materials preserved in rocks, and the high energy of a river-type environment is not really a good place for preserving that. But you know that wherever there was a lot of water flowing, eventually it had to come to rest somewhere, and you you will get a pool of uh, waters out of which settles very fine sediment, and that's a really good place to preserve organic materials. So it's looking very hopeful for Curiosity to find this kinds of elusive stuff that it's been looking for since it landed on Mars. And you include with this, uh, sort of for context, although it's not from the context camera on Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, but from HiRISE, this uh, image of the region that Curiosity is traveling through right now. And, you know, in this picture, it looks like pretty challenging terrain, but is that correct? 
Well, there's certainly topography here. There are canyons and mesas and low areas and high areas, but Curiosity is a very capable robot. Uh, the mobility system can handle fairly steep slopes, 10, 15, 20 degrees. And so as long as they're allowed to keep driving on the wheels that they keep poking holes into, they're going to be able to manage this landscape with no problem. Yeah, sadly, no place to change a, a tire and no spare tire in the first place up there. Well, we'll continue to follow this along with you, Emily. And these reports are in her blog at planetary.org. You uh, can check them out there, along with all of her other good reporting. Thanks a lot, Emily. Thank you, Matt. Senior Editor for the Planetary Society and our Planetary Evangelist. She is also a contributing editor to Sky and Telescope magazine. Coming up next, more from our recent Planetary Radio Live that talked about Curiosity, but also all of the other rovers that have visited Mars. Last week, we relived a few minutes from our two-hour Planetary Radio Live celebration of all the Mars rovers, and especially Opportunity, the little explorer that has just completed 10 years of wandering and discovery on the Red Planet. Planetary Society CEO Bill Nye stayed with me on stage at KPCC Southern California Public Radio's Crawford Family Forum to welcome Mars Science Laboratory Project Scientist John Grodzinger of the California Institute of Technology and Jet Propulsion Lab Mars Engineering Manager Rob Manning. Also joining us via Skype on that great evening was astronomer and planetary scientist Jim Bell of Arizona State University. You can hear and see the entire wonderful evening on KPCC's website. The link is on this week's show page at planetary.org slash radio. We'll begin this time with a question for Rob Manning, the man who led the teams that have figured out how to land four rovers on Mars. Did you believe that this was going to work? Sky cranes, an incredible Powered by seven rockets. minutes. What, Powered are you by crazy? Rockets, yeah. Lowered on a winch down to the surface of Mars. Rob. <laughs> of course you thought it was going to work. You wouldn't have said it if you didn't think it was going to uh, no, work. I, in fact, I, 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 I actually had higher expectations of success for MSL than we had with the airbag landers. Hmm. The other hand, this beast was so much more damn complicated. It was a very complicated machine. There was so much more things that could go wrong that we had our fingertips on, things that we caused. It wasn't Mars I was worried about. With airbags, I'm worried about wind gusts and sharp rocks and hills and slopes. On this vehicle, I'm worried about a spark on touchdown mm. messing up the signals that go up from the rover to the descent stage and the descent stage going here, right on top of my head. <laughs> and so there, there were, I was, I, there's a lot of things to worry about. And, and you can, you know, people often wonder why are these people so excited. It's because they've worked very hard and they've been practicing and practicing getting this right. This is the last run they've ever done of any test they, they need to do. So, so uh, after, after years of getting it, it's a heck of a relief. John, far too many project scientists have had moments like this that did not go as well. You must have been thinking, wow, now I get to start doing science. You actually have an idea of, of what you think you're going to feel like, what you should feel like, and then it happens. And, and I think it's the same thing. When you realize that this was going to happen, there, there is a sense of you know, a $2.5 billion priceless national asset has just landed on the surface, and now you have to make something happen. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> and <clears throat> so, you know, these guys all go off to the local bar, <laughs> and it's 10.30 at night. None of us have slept anyway, and we actually have to go to work. No, it's not really true. Those guys are, we're all looking at the systems, making sure things check out. But uh, it is. It's the beginning. It's, it's all zero. And, uh, you know, the beginning of a mission, and you, you wonder what's going to happen. And those pictures that, that came down, you know, that's a great story in its own right because it was very much of a negotiation between science and engineering because what you're really doing at the instant of landing is you want <clears throat> all of the telemetry to come down that tells you about the spacecraft's state of health. But at the same time, that's offset against any data volume that sends down a picture. Are pictures really important? Well, I don't know. Do we really need them? It's important to know exactly if the spacecraft fails, exactly how, or if the, if it's if it's not safe, if it's if it's there but not functioning properly. We want to know how to get those pictures down. What I was wondering at that moment was hoping and praying that the data volume that would execute would allow the one picture to come down, but the other one that came down 39 minutes later with the dust covers off that actually showed Mount Sharp, that to me is is possibly still my favorite picture of the mission because there you see the iconic vision of of what we had always wondered from orbit, is it there on the ground? That was amazing, and it was all a matter of data volume. How tall is Mount Sharp? It's a little over five kilometers so it's taller than any mountain in the lower 48, taller than Mount Whitney. About 16,000 feet. Yeah. It's big. Higher than Mount Rainier. <laughs> and how far are we away from, I say we, how far are we away from it now, us? <laughs> 200 million miles. <laughs> oh, cool. Yeah. <laughs> Wise guys. Yeah. It's brilliant. Yeah, I spent a lot of time that far away, actually. <laughs> so... Uh, how far is the rover from there? Yeah, we're about halfway from where we landed, more or less. We got about five kilometers to go. Uh, and but know, here's what happens: you guys, you start rolling. Hey, here's a rock. Hey, look at this. Yeah. You know, that's where it comes back a little bit to what Matt was saying. What do we learn from the previous rover missions? Going from rock to rock to rock. When we landed with Spirit and Opportunity, I can remember Squires going on and on about how we cannot stop at every rock because we have bigger aspirations. we got to do things. We have to put them in context. And so we still looked at lots of rocks. And so with, uh, with Curiosity, it, it's such a capable vehicle that looking at individual rocks is, is not as rewarding. There's, there's much bigger prizes there. So we benefited from, from rock looking in earlier mission, missions, but we still do it. Jim? So how long do you think before you get there? We get there. It. Us. That. You, you know, we're, uh, it's, every mission has its challenges, and we got a new one. Uh, we're in kind of a briar patch right now. We were booking along, going as fast as we could, and Just suddenly... punching it. Punching it and punching with rocks, punching through the wheels. <laughs> and so when we realized that actually this terrain is really rugged and pointy, and so we've had to slow it down a lot because we want to protect uh, the rover and try to understand exactly how the mobility system is interacting with the terrain. And, and then as we build our confidence up, uh, we'll pick up the pace again. I got to apologize to our next guest who is patiently waiting on Skype, has been waiting for a little while now. Now he's a professor at uh, Arizona State University School of Earth and Space Exploration. He has served as lead scientist for the panoramic, panoramic cameras or pan cams on Spirit and Opportunity. And his books, 
include postcards from Mars and most recently the space book. I call him the Ansel Adams of Mars. Incidentally, <laughs> he's also president of the Planetary Society's board. Please welcome via Skype, Jim Bell. Hey, Matt. It's great to see you. It's great to see one of my, one of my heroes, Rob Manning, right there. This guy can do anything. What's that line? He could land a washing machine if, uh, if somebody let him. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. And I recognize Bill Nye's left knee right there. It's good to see it healed. <laughs> Most famous dancing uh, engineer, scientist in the world. Way we, to go, Bill. We should tell the audience here and at home that there's a little tiny webcam over there that is giving Jim this lousy wide-angle view of the stage. He's not getting to see the nice picture that we have of Jim. Jim, you're sitting right up here uh, on the panel next to us. I think a lot of people identify you with the Mars Exploration Rover mission, but you're also part of the Curiosity mission, right? Yeah, yeah. So I, I work really closely with John, and what is it, John? Five hundred science team members now on on uh, Curiosity. You know, a huge collection of uh, principal investigators and geologists and atmospheric scientists and geochemists and students and you know just uh, just a great collection of, of people. How have you seen things evolve? And we can even take it all the way back to Sojourner, if you like. But at least from that, those glorious days 10 years ago when spirit and opportunity came bouncing down onto the surface, what have we learned about Mars? Well, that's, that's, really, good. that's really good. That's a great question, uh, uh, Matt. And I suspect all of us are going to have different answers. You know, one of the, one of the answers, is one that Rob already gave, you know, we've learned how to operate remote control cars on another planet we've learned how to tweak our own crazy circadian rhythms to live on mars time for months before going crazy uh as the sun rises on one rover and the sun sets on the other rover and you know the sun never sets on the jpl mars empire right so <laughs> and and uh you know we've learned we've learned how to operate on another world and we've learned a whole bunch of science uh, about these very special places on Mars, you know, uh, both uh, the, the Gusev site for Spirit, the Meridiani site for Opportunity, now the Gale Crater site uh, for Curiosity. All of those places could have been habitable environments by the way that we define them here on the Earth. You know, the presence of liquid water interacting with the rock, heat sources, possibly organic molecules. We know that organics are raining down on Mars from asteroids and comets all the time. Uh, and Curiosity is well-equipped to try to find them uh, if they're there. Just knowing that there were habitable environments by the way we define them on this planet and, and that we're good at finding them, you know, based on this spectacular array of orbiters that have been up there for decades mm. now, uh, taking pictures, making uh, mineral measurements from orbit, adapting our, our own way of thinking from the Pathfinder results, Spirit Opportunity, now Curiosity, one of John's colleagues at Caltech has figured out where we should look in certain kinds of cliffs and exposures to find the most freshly exposed material on the surface. And, and so we're learning how to explore this place. And I think that's just a wonderful thing. More of our Planetary Radio Live Mars Rover celebration is a minute away. This is Planetary Radio. Greetings, Planetary Radio fans. Bill Nye here. Thanks for listening each week. Did you know the show reaches nearly 100,000 space and science enthusiasts? You and your organization can become part of Planetary Radio by becoming an underwriter. Your generosity will be acknowledged on the air each week, as well as on the Planetary Society website. 
To learn more, visit planetary.org slash underwriting. That's planetary.org slash underwriting. Thanks again for making us your place in space. Your name carried to an asteroid. How cool is that? You, your family, your friends, your cat, we're inviting everyone to travel along on NASA's OSIRIS-REx mission to asteroid Bennu. All the details are at planetary.org slash B-E-N-N-U. You can submit your name and then print your beautiful certificate. That's planetary.org slash Bennu. Planetary Society members, your name is already on the list. The Planetary Society, we're your place in space. Welcome back to Planetary Radio Live. I'm Matt Kaplan. We have continued our celebration of the Mars rovers, really a celebration of all the robotic explorers of the Red Planet. It was in front of a capacity crowd on January 23rd at KPCC Southern California Public Radio's Crawford Family Forum. Bill Nye joined the conversation with Curiosity Project scientist John Grotzinger and JPL Mars engineering manager Rob Manning, while Mars Exploration rover PanCam lead Jim Bell participated via Skype. Again, you can see it all on KPCC's website with a link leading there from planetary.org slash radio. Jim Bell had just told us what we've learned about Mars when I turned to John Grotzinger with the same question. John, I want to let you get in on that. What have we learned? I think Jim really hit the nail on the head there. You know, Mars is special uh, for many reasons, but one of the things, this this process of having alternating orbiters and, and, and rovers and landers, and they iterate and they go back and forth, I think that we have benefited tremendously from that because you can start to explore for something very systematically. And, you know, Bill's got his two big questions. And this issue about are we alone is actually very much related to how did we get here. So if you go back to the early Earth, where I did most of my exploring early on in my career, what we're doing now on Mars is very close to the state of the art of what we do on Earth. We know that this planet teems with life, but if you go back and look at rocks that are billions of years old, you almost never find evidence for it. And, you know, I'll skip all the mumbo-jumbo and chemistry, but the, the important thing about it is, is that we, by studying the Earth, we can learn how to study another terrestrial planet. And by having alternating rovers and orbiters, we can hone in on the thing that we're most interested in and take that, that grand question and break it down into bite-sized chunks that if we're just patient enough, we've got a decent chance to honestly address this question. I, I, w- I never dreamed that in my professional career that we would advance from looking out the window and just barely tasting Mars. I mean, really, 20 years ago, we had, we had these fantastic images from Viking, and, and Viking did, and, and, and as well as Mariner 9 and other, other missions, that, that gave us a hint that Mars was a more interesting place than, than we dared dream. I remember talking to Mike Carr and suggesting, well, maybe, Mike, maybe, maybe we might see true evidence of, of water-altered uh, rock. And, and he goes, no, no, Rob, don't go there. It's, it's, we, you know, we don't have the evidence. It's, it's too soon. You know, don't get your hopes up. Uh, and okay, I'm oh, sorry, sorry, I won't get my hopes up. But, but, but the fact is, uh, could have it, been liquid carbon dioxide, yeah. mercury, something. Yeah, yeah. But the fact that he, he, the fact that we were able to get to this point where now we're doing terrestrial science, Earth-like science on another planet. That's the part that's that in, in just a, really a small number of years has, has blown me away. The, the thing that scares me most is, you know, how do we, how do we top this? I mean, this... this oh, I got some ideas. You got some ideas? <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe I'll land it for you. 
<laughs> but but it's, it's, it, it, it is pretty astounding that we've, we've gotten to this level of detail. I mean, the, the, and, the, and the whole, it's a whole other generation of scientists and engineers who now think about this problem so much more differently than we did. As, which I mean, our fund, fundable job was just getting out there and looking around and barely interacting with the surface and barely doing much science with it. And suddenly now we're, we're doing it very... It's taken for granted. You're going to land yeah. on the surface with any instrument you can think of, right? <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. So it, it's, it's, it's really a whole other level. I mean, there's several key scientific exploration milestones that happened that just revolutionized. One was, was when we went backwards down endurance crater and we did this stratigraphic section. Remember that? We walked Our down. Drill. Jim remembers that. We went out. Think about that. That, to me, I, I got chills down my back when that happened because it was no longer just going out going, ooh, what's that? What's that? It's actually doing systematic well, science. And, Rob, 10 years ago, that was kind of state of the art of what we were doing on the early Earth. Yeah. Doing chemostratigraphy, bed by bed, looking not just if there's water, but how the water changes through time. Right. We're doing a time series. And did you, would you have guessed, would you, Jim, or would you have guessed that we could have actually found a section without having, and we, we actually thought to do this, we'd have to build these giant drilling gantries to go <laughs> down uh, uh, tens of meters on Mars. Instead, Mars provides a way to do it. We didn't even yeah. know we could do it. Dude, dude, we'd never seen outcrop on Mars before January 24th, <laughs> yeah, 2004. True. So, you know, of course not, no. Yeah. So, so it did, it's been revolutionary for us. And then now, and then the other iconic thing for me is, is the uh, uh, Cumberland, the second hole, drill hole. We drilled into that hole with this fantastic camera, the Molly camera on the end of the robotic arm. We looked in, into that hole, and you could see little tiny veins. And what's more, um, we were able to target the ChemCam uh, laser and, and produce duck, 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 and shot holes inside a dime-sized hole. Humans sent a ray gun to Mars. Set a ray <laughs> Damn straight. And it, I, I mean, it, 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 the, the level of exploration has gone down to another like, couple of orders of magnitude, it seems to me, in terms of how our ability to understand. The problem is, how do you get to the next order of magnitude? Mars is looking bigger all the time. Uh, Rob, the other thing Jim. that's happened is, you know, we've We've been able to take the public along with us in, in this incredible ride, you know, uh, not just members of the Planetary Society who can follow Emily's blog and, and Bill's posts. And, you know, it's great stuff. But just the general public who's interested in downloading images, we put it out there almost as soon as it comes down from the Deep Space Network. There's this big community of amateur enthusiasts who make mosaics and panoramas and false color, and they do spectacular work. And, and that community is growing and, and it, it, they're connected to this, this exploration enterprise in a way that I, I never could when I was a kid. The way I connected was to join the Planetary Society in 1980 when, uh, when Carl Sagan and Bruce Murray and Lou Friedman founded it. That's how I connected. But nowadays, it's, it's all out there on the web. We work really hard to, to, to involve people in this, these great adventures. I was going to bring this up when we watched the video because when you guys were celebrating in your control room, Bill, you know, you remember where you were oh, that yeah. day. Pasadena Civic Center, the auditorium. Yeah. We had uh, 3,000 people going crazy <laughs> for uh, a rover landing on another world. It's just, uh, it was amazing. People are just engaged. It's exciting. Absolutely. So this brings me, if I may, gentlemen, this brings me to a routine question for Bill the little kid. When are we going to send people there? Uh, because people can explore so much faster than 
You know, I know you guys are, and I am too. I'm a mechanical engineer, all right? I'm into it. But I'm excited when we go a kilometer. Yes! It only took three months. <laughs> you know, but if people were there, I mean, the one of the numbers you guys throw around, the geologists throw around, uh, what a rover can do in a week, a human does in about a minute. Bill, so, it really depends which RPs on duty. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but let me, let me amplify that question about beginning with when do the humans get to go? What have these rovers done to help pave the way? How, have they, how are they making it easier for oh, us man, to contemplate story, sending yeah. humans? Jim? Yeah, so, you know, there's a whole bunch of information that we need to know about Mars before people can really go there and, and be effective. And it was the same with the exploration of the moon. You know, prior to the human exploration of the moon and the Apollo missions, there, was, there were rangers, there were surveyors, and, of course, there was a, a Gemini, Mercury and Gemini. Uh, so there was, you know, the human side getting ready for that part of the adventure, but also the science, the robotic side, was doing a lot of the supporting measurements, the basic physical properties. What are the temperatures like? What's the environment like? How hard or soft is the soil? Is it potentially toxic in some way? So just making those basic fundamental measurements, and that's partly what Pathfinder Spirit Opportunity and uh, and curiosity have been doing for the past few decades helping us get that basic fundamental information it's probably what the orbiters are doing up above mars mapping the planet globally trying to find the best places to send people because there'll be somewhere that's the first place that we send people and that's going to be a really important place because it will have been identified as a potentially habitable environment it will have had to have been identified as safe to land and probably, and this is just my guess, and you know, John and others should speculate, it will have been identified as a place where we need people to go, probably to go in this direction instead of that direction. Go set up drill rigs, get down into the subsurface, which is protected from the ultraviolet, uh, and you know, maybe where it's warmer, maybe there's a water table, etc. But get deep into the subsurface, doing the things that, that, that it's worthy of sending human explorers to do. Can I rappel down a cliff? Let's do it. I'm, I'm, I'm really I want to go. John, what do you think? Well, we, for example, we don't want the astronauts to show up and have the rocks poke holes in their boots. Yeah. I mean, these are <laughs> aluminum wheels, right, with holes poked in them. It's true. Yeah, bring steel-toed shoes with you on Mars. I, John, gonna, what kind of steel? Before, I, <laughs> before we get back to you, John, Rob, do we know now how to get a really big can full of people down onto the surface of Mars? I, I think the answer to that is uh, we know how it might happen, but we don't know the way it will happen, ironically. We, one of the challenges is, uh, is that uh, Mars has such a thin atmosphere. It's not like the moon where you can fire engines backwards. There's, uh, there's too much atmosphere to do that, uh, and there's too little atmosphere to land on Mars like you do on Earth. With like with the space shuttle, with its it uses its, its belly as a as a heat shield, and then uses its wings to slow down further and land on the on the runway. Um, one of the so 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 we have these Rube Goldbergian contraptions that we've invented that convert from an Earth-like landing system to a lunar-like landing system at the very end, and it's been it's very very complicated. So that's true. That would be true even worse for larger systems because because in the, if the larger you are and the heavier you are, the less you slow down. Because unless you have a really big uh, flat area that slows you down, so making it's going to be it's going to be it's really hard, and it's not impossible. The laws of physics don't prevent it. It's just that it's 
uh, it may, it's, you're going to see some very large things get to Mars to help slow you down in order to do it properly. So the answer is we could do it. It's just a challenge, really big challenge. But I, I think it won't be all that different from Curiosity's landing. I mean, and, um, I, I do think that uh, it would be able to land at, a, at, a, at an elevation similar to, to a Gale crater. It'd be able to land in a region as, as, as small as, or if not smaller, than where Curiosity landed in our little landing area, the, the uh, 12 by uh, uh, 7 by 20, uh, 7 by, we can actually get down to 7 by 12 um, Kilometer, kilometer right. uh, landing. 12 kilometer long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Post, post, post stamp. That, and that's something closer to the size. Yes, it's still not too small. It's like <laughs> greater Pasadena, mm. right? Um, but but I'm not, I'm not, I can't land on the corner of Lake in Colorado, but I can, I can land somewhere in that general neighborhood. And I think that will be true with, with these, these systems, too. But it's, it's going to be a while. And so I'm not going to raise people's hopes that we've got it all to our act together yet. We John, don't. before we take a break uh, and go back to Hedgehog Swing, actually, during that break, um, do you want to see people on Mars to uh, pick up where these robots uh, have left off? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think that uh, I'd be lucky enough in my lifetime to have that happen and and the reason why is because I think with the rovers, what you do is you, you learn how to explore and you get a sense for how Mars is different from Earth and how it's similar from Earth. But then after that, MSL is the right idea, but what you really want to do is set up a big lab. If, if you want to address this question, are we alone, and that leads you to the ancient rock record of Mars, you gotta, you got to have up there what we have on Earth. We can return samples, and hopefully we'll learn some very general things about Mars that will teach us where to look specifically. But then once you're there, what Earth teaches us, a planet that we know has life, is that you have to look and look and look and process. And John Callis made this comment today about, about uh, why opportunity lasts as long as John it John Callis, the project manager for the Mars Exploration Rovers. Right. And, you know, and Rob and Steve were talking a little bit about it tonight. At the end, being smart only gets you so far. At the end, you just have to get a little bit lucky. This is the legacy of understanding the record of early life on Earth. You just got to find that sweet spot, and you have to process enough rocks to get in the sweet spot. And then when you're there, you're still not done looking. And you have to process a lot of rock until you know that there was a microbe on Earth that lived three and a half billion years ago. And I, that's the reason to send humans. John Grotzinger, Jim Bell, Rob Manning, and Bill Nye with me for a Planetary Radio Live celebration of Mars rovers and all other robotic exploration of the Red Planet. Bruce Betts and What's Up are next. Time for What's Up on Planetary Radio. Here is Bruce Betts, the Director of Projects for the Planetary Society. Welcome, and since I can't talk to Bill about it because he's not, we're not recording any new material from him this week, I'll just pretend you're Bill. How about those Seahawks? Well, gosh, Matt, it was really great. It showed you the passion, beauty, and joy of football in the Northwest. <laughs> you got to work on that impression a little bit. Uh, yeah, I, I'm not good at impressions. I could bring in my sons. They're really good. Yeah, you could do Scooby, I suppose, but he doesn't sound anything <laughs> like Bill. Nah, it's all right. Just talk about the night sky, something you're really good at. I was rooting for the Broncos. <laughs> yeah, I just have to say, as a Vikings fan, every Super Bowl without the Vikings 
it's an exciting thing because it means the Vikings aren't going to lose the Super Bowl. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, at least that's how I try to look at it. You can't win if you don't play. <laughs> <laughs> So far, so good. All right, on to the night sky. Up in the night sky, Jupiter, the easy thing to see all night long. Uh, up, uh, getting higher in the east in the shortly after sunset, but then crossing the sky throughout the night, looking bright. On February 11th, it'll be hanging out near the moon, making for a lovely sight. In the early evening, shortly after sunset, you can catch Mercury very low in the west. Then we got Mars coming up in the middle of the night in the east and Saturn coming up later. And then Venus, super bright Venus, low in the pre-dawn east. We move on to this week in space history. Forty years ago this week, a couple interesting things. One, Mariner 10 flew by Venus, used a gravity assist, uh, which was a party. First time doing that to head off to using one planet to get to another planet. Mariner 10 flew by Venus, headed on its way to Mercury. And then also this week, four years ago, Skylab 4, the last of the Skylab missions, ended after an 84-day mission by its crew. Oh, and also I have to mention, uh, uh, for your benefit, Matt, uh, 1971, Alan Shepard hit golf balls on the moon this Yeah. Week. Thank you. All right. On to random special fact. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, your Italian uh, accent is about as good as your Bill Nye. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Skylab 4, we just mentioned, the last Skylab flight, was very unusual in that all three crew members, for all three of them, this was their only space flight. They were all rookies, and they never flew again. Wow, getting up there just once is so much better than so many other astronauts that uh, they really shouldn't feel bad, should they? No, no, I, I wasn't being critical. I, I was just noting it as a random space fact. Yeah, fascinating, though. Thank you. <laughs> On to the trivia contest. Although, first, I want to mention a couple things uh, quickly before I forget. Uh, one, I'm starting up my class this week, California State University, Dominguez Hills, planetary.org slash bets class, B-E-T-T-S class. You can participate in the classes watching them live on Wednesday afternoons, Pacific time. Or you can always catch them in archive form. And if you do watch them live, you can ask questions via internet or even calling in. It's groovy. Matt will be joining me yeah. in, uh, in, in a week and a half and uh, playing at the class. We'll record one of, my, one of these segments. But if you want to leap in right off the bat, uh, there's the story. Yeah, join us on the 12th of February. You can uh, join us live or watch the archive. Either way, it really is a great class. And he's done it a bunch of times now, so it's even better now. <laughs> it gets smoother, and I update it and everything. All right. Also, don't forget, you can submit your name to fly to an asteroid at planetary.org slash Bennu, B-E-N-N-U, on the OSIRIS-REx spacecraft. Now, on to trivia. Uh, We asked you, what bodies has Rosetta, the European Space Agency, Rosetta spacecraft, flown by on its way to its comet encounter coming later this year? How'd we do, Matt? Like last week, when we had a huge response, not quite as big this time, but still quite large, our winner, Joseph Scaife of Sheffield, United Kingdom, who said, now a lot of people missed some of these, They, a lot of people in particular left out Earth as one of those that uh, Rosetta has flown by. Here you go, Earth, Mars, Earth again, asteroid 2867 Steins, Earth a third time, asteroid 21 Lutetia, so six different flybys. Pretty amazing. We actually had a question for you, Bruce, from Kevin West, wondering if any other spacecraft has made more flybys than Rosetta. 
Huh. Well, off off the top of my head, probably not in terms of uh, if it hasn't gone into orbit around a planet. Now, if you look at Galileo and Cassini around Jupiter and Saturn, even if you don't count the planet, they did tens and are doing, in the case of Cassini, tens of flybys of the moons. Uh, we had Voyager 2 doing four-planet flybys, uh, working its way through the outer solar system. But six? I don't think so, off the top of my head, unless you count those moon flybys by the Galileo and Cassini. We're going to send Joseph the Cosmos, this wonderful new textbook uh, the Cosmos, Astronomy, and the New Millennium by Jay Pasikoff and Alex Filipenko. Maeve Hamrick came up with some movies. If we were to make a movie or somebody was to make a movie about Rosetta, he came up with several titles, but one of them is Gravity Assist. <laughs> uh, yeah, it sounds familiar. Sounds like some other movie that was out recently. Yeah, starring, who was it? Somebody. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. You'll want Gravity Assist also star Sandra Bullock. Kurt, Kurt Lewis is also saying that we should all chip in maybe on Kickstarter and uh, take up a collection, buy the European Space Agency a bigger rocket for Rosetta 2 so that it can get there sooner. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but they have so much patience. And they got you know some, some nice science out of some of those flybys. Now, speaking of Kickstarter, he said in a segue way, that has everything to do with the prize for this coming week. Our friend Liam Kennedy has invented a device that he calls ISS Above, International Space Station Above. This is a little tiny box. It's actually an entire tiny computer in a teeny-weeny box that has programmed into it for your location, because he'll create it for you, uh, when the ISS is flying over your town, your home. And it lights up. It starts flashing when it does that. And he's got several models of this. He actually has it on Kickstarter, but and he made his goal. He's more than made his goal now. But he has donated an ISS Above unit for us to give away on the show. Please let us know the trivia question that is going to win somebody an ISS Above. Well, speaking of space stations in orbit, the astronauts on Skylab 4, what comet did they make observations of? Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. Get us your entry to compete for that glorious prize. And you have this time until the 10th. That would be February 10 at 2 p.m. Pacific time to get us the answer. You can learn more about ISS Above at, guess what, ISSAbove.com or the Kickstarter campaign, which is uh, still underway for a few more days. I, I think we're done. All right, everybody. Don't forget introductory astronomy and planetary science class and while you're not forgetting go out there look up the night sky and think about storage boxes and how big they should be thank you and good night you know the uh, the corollary of murphy's law no matter how big your storage box is you'll need more <laughs> true he's bruce betts the director of projects for the planetary society who joins us each week here for what's up Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by the always thinking outside the box members of the society. Clear skies.